Support for WPR comes from Tomorrow River Community Virtual School, delivering Waldorf-inspired live virtual lessons to grades 4K through 8th, open to all Wisconsin students. More is at trcvs.org. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Have you ever set your keys down and moments later forgotten where they were? Have you ever remembered an event in your life and found out that someone else who was there remembered it completely differently? Those are just two quirks in our complicated system of human memory. Our next guest is a memory researcher. In his new book, he shares the latest research about the science of memory and how we might harness that knowledge to improve our lives and understand ourselves a little better. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think of your memory as being particularly good or bad? What sorts of things do you find it easy to remember or harder to remember? Have you found little secrets, tips to help you remember something? Say, attach that name to a face. You could help me out with that. Do you have a question about how memory does and doesn't work? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Charan Ranganath is a professor of psychology and director of the Center for Neuroscience at the University of California at Davis. He's the author of the new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Charan, welcome to Central Time. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I don't want to spoil the end of the book, but uh, the answer to the question of why we remember, why humans have the capacity for memory in the first place, isn't completely clear. Why is that such an open question still? Well, you know, there's the big answer to the question, which is I believe that memory is about understanding what's happening now and being able to anticipate what could happen in the future. But that's kind of an assumption. And in general with science, I find that you really, the whole process is about getting data and then asking better and better questions. So to some extent, why we remember is a big question, but then to really answer it well, you want to go into the smaller, more specific questions as well. We sometimes think of our memory as, I don't know, like a camera. We've stored all this data and we just dig into those files and access it. That's completely wrong in a lot of ways. You say in your in your book that our brains are designed to forget. Why is forgetting such an important part of our memory? Well, the, I liken it to imagine you're trying to design a vehicle, right? And so you could design a vehicle that's going to carry around a bunch of junk, right? In which case you're not going to get good handling. You're not going to get good fuel economy. But on the other hand, you could design a car that's more for performance. And you could do it in a way that's like economical, but it can still stop on a dime and it's got very fast performance. And our brains take in that approach as opposed to the haul around a bunch of junk approach. So on one hand, we tend to forget a lot of information. In fact, the majority of the details of our lives will be reduced to like a much smaller fraction of that within even a couple of days. But on the other hand, that information, we tend to be able to use it very effectively. So we make the most of what's there. There are different kinds of memory, if I'm reading your book right. Uh, information, re you know, remembering a particular date or fact or something is one kind of memory. Remembering our events in our lives can be a different kind of memory. How do those two things work differently? Yeah, so there's uh, that remembering, having the knowledge about things that happen, uh, like being able to just know information about 
say, what you do with a cell phone or something like that. And that's actually, maybe that's not the best example. Being able to know information about, let's say, British history or something, if you studied it in school. On the other hand, there's your memory for a trip to Britain that you might have taken. And so that would be associated not with any particular general information, but it would be more uh, this experience of being able to travel back to a time and place in your mind. Um, in fact, Endel Tulving called episodic memory as a kind of mental time travel. And so this kind of memory is different because it's specific to a particular time and place, whereas semantic memory is some knowledge that we can use anywhere, anytime, in any place. Charan Ranganath is with us. His new book is called Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. You can join in. If you have a question about memory, a story about memory to share, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Charan, you're a memory researcher. You're also a musician and a music fan. Reading your book and your chapter titles put like 80 different songs in my head over the last couple of days. Um, there's something uniquely powerful, it seems like, when it comes to music and how it can trigger, uh, enhance, uh, provoke memories. What is it about music? Well, I think there's so many factors, but I'll just give you a few. So one is is that music is evokes emotions. And so as a result, you know, these emotional experiences are the ones that we tend to prioritize in memory. So that alone gives us an advantage. But we also have, we uniquely associate music with particular times in our lives. So I don't know if you've had this, like, have you ever had a time where, uh, like a summer or something, where you just listen to a song, mm -hmm. and then you stopped listening to it after that? Have you experienced something like that? Oh, so much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you have this song that you just listened to for that period. And so now that song is like the soundtrack to that time in your life. And when you hear it, it can evoke some kind of sense of what it was like to be at that place in time. And once you're mentally back in that place in time, you now have access to all of these memories that you might not have been able to see before. And so that, that's one of the reasons why music is so evocative. Um, another is, is that we tend to remember certain times in our life, which are the times where a sense of who we are is being formed. So like, times from adolescence all the way up to, let's say, late, you know, adulthood. And so that period of time is also when our musical tastes tend to really become quite focused. So I think that's another thing as well, is that we like to look back on those parts of our life. All right. Now, I started the conversation mentioning something I think has happened to a lot of pe people. Here's my keys. Just set them down on the counter here. Now, sometimes I'm like a lot of people. I might set them down somewhere in my house and then forget where I set them, and then go nuts trying to find them when I need to leave the house again. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on, and there are ways to help us do better. Talk us through that uh, finding our keys scenario. Well, so the problem with finding your keys and the reason it's so hard is that you have so many competing memories of places that you've kept your keys, right? So unless you have a habit of putting your keys in the same place, and I certainly don't, <laughs> so... <laughs> What happens is is that every time I'm looking for my keys, I'm just stuck with all of these different competing memories for it, and it's not a very unique memory. Adding to that is the problem that we're often distracted, either because we're in our own heads, which is me most of the time, to be honest, or because we're getting distracted by alerts on our phones or you know other devices, for instance. And then there's, of course, the things that you can't avoid, like, for instance, any parent of a newborn child 
they're crying, you have to drop everything and go take care of that. So there's lots of these distractions that move us away from actually being able to focus on what we're doing in the moment. Um, as far as how to go back and find those keys later, the best advice I can give you is to try to mentally retrace your steps. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but it really is true. If you can bring yourself in your mind, not to the point where you put down your keys, but the points leading up to it, like just imagine what happened when I opened the door and what was I thinking about at the time? Sometimes that can ignite the memory because you're now activating that context in your head. And related to that, and, and correct me if I'm not reading you right, what we sometimes think of memory decline, uh, say over time, I'm getting worse at remembering where I put my keys. It's not necessarily that, you know, I'm losing that ability to, uh, you know, uh, put that data into my brain. It's that I'm losing my ability to filter out some of those distractions you were talking about. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, as we get older, what happens is, is that, uh, um, there's an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, and it's really important for allowing us to use memory to get what we need when we need it. And so the prefrontal cortex, its function tends to go down as we get older. And so as a result, we struggle a little bit more to find the right information when we need it. Sometimes we get the wrong information, and we're a little bit slow to pick up the mistakes when that happens. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Fidel is with us in Milwaukee. Fidel, hi. What did you want to bring up? Hi there. Yes, I wanted to bring up um, a video on YouTube I saw uh, regarding um, chimpanzees. I remember seeing this video of these chimpanzees were um, showing these numbers on the screen, and they were tapping after a couple seconds. They were meant to tap what the numbers were showing. And I thought that was fascinating. You know, after a couple seconds, they could already remember. Uh, what the what the numbers were. And so I don't know if maybe the speaker could maybe speak on, you know, differences between human memory and either our ancestors or how it's evolved over time. Interesting, Fidel. And I know you've uh, looked at uh, sea lions and mice and I think other primates as well. How do their memories uh, compare and contrast with ours? Well, there's so much there. So, I mean, I, I first of all, just to uh, expand on Fidel's uh, question, mm. There was an experiment that was done where they teach these chimpanzees math, and what they found was that they could actually be faster in some ways uh, than people could. And part of the issue is, is that these, monk, uh, these chimpanzees were trained to do this task over and over and over again. And humans, if they're trained to become experts on any particular task, are amazing at it. So if you look at an expert chess player, they can just look at a chessboard and immediately commit that information to memory. So expertise buys you an awful lot. Um, I think what makes human memory so effective is that we can grab pieces of information that don't correspond to what we knew, that don't correspond to anything we've ever experienced before. And that's what makes humans especially effective. Um, that kind of episodic memory, it, I can't say that it doesn't happen in other animals. There are birds, for instance, that can actually uh, show this exceptional ability to remember where and when uh, something happened. Really cool study of birds where a bird is uh, being watched by another bird while they bury their food um, for the winter. And then as soon as the other bird goes away, they return back to that spot, dig it up, and put it somewhere else <laughs> because they remembered that this happened and they were being watched, and so they needed to move it so the other bird wouldn't steal their food. Uh, so there's a lot we don't know about how rich animals' memories are. Um, you mentioned the sea lions, and that was just a fun, fun study to be part of. 
where what we found was that you know sea lions are are exceptional foragers, and so they have great memory for where they get their food from. Uh, but if you look at sea lions that have uh, eaten, for instance, toxic algae in these red tides, what happen? Or they eat fish that eat these algae. They can get damage to parts of the brain that actually affect memory. And so these are often uh, the animals that wash up on the shore. They're washing up the sh- uh, to the shore because they've lost that ability to remember where they are. And so to some extent, they resemble what happens to people in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, where they're sort of floating in space and time. Charan Ranganath is with us from University of California, Davis. He researches memory there. His new book is called Why? We remember unlocking memory's power to hold on to what matters. You could join in at 800-642-1234. I'm going to put my keys back in my pocket before I forget where I put them. How about you? Do you have little tips to help you remember where you put your keys, the name that goes along with that face? What is the earliest memory you have? Have you ever remembered an event differently from someone else who experienced it with you? Do you have questions about how memory works? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Farad. We're picking up our conversation with Charan Ranganath, professor of psychology, director of neuroscience at the University of California at Davis, talking about his new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about memory and how it works? A story to share uh, about a time when you maybe doubted your memory for one reason or another. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Brian is with us in Duluth. Brian, hi. Hello. Hi, what would you want to tell Um, us about, Brian? Yeah, right. I tell you what, um, I had uh, cancer, prostate cancer, a a year ago, a little over a year ago, diagnosed, and then uh, chemotherapy, radiation to the spine, which is CNS, uh, central nervous system. Um, And then I'm on long-term, I'm sorry, um, androgen deprivation therapy indefinitely. And my understanding is that chemotherapy, all of those three things, um, the spine is the central nervous system as well, can cause memory issues. Doesn't necessarily, but it does. It can, and it did in me. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I'm. What seems to have happened is that I um, have kind of plateaued uh, in an improvement there, and I think that's because the androgen deprivation uh, therapy um, is is kind of a, a ceiling on my memory. Interesting, Brian. Thanks for the call. Now, Sharon, of course, you can't give uh, specific medical advice for Brian, but is this common? Cancer treatments, uh, hormone treatments, things like that, having an impact on our memory? Yes, definitely. There's something uh, that your caller uh, talked about that reminded me of work on chemo brain, which is basically during chemotherapy, people have a lot of trouble remembering. Some of it is related to the prefrontal cortex that we talked about before. And so, again, this idea that you have trouble being able to focus on what's relevant at the time. And so that gives you the sense of being in a mental fog. I mean, in general, one of the things we're finding is that 
things that affect the immune system, well, the immune system acts in the brain. And so those inflammatory conditions like long COVID can also affect memory. And I'm sure some of your listeners who are struggling with that, you know, it's a, it's a very real thing that these conditions can affect memory. Um, the, the good thing is, is that there's some evidence suggests that this can be reversible. And in fact, uh, your caller might be reassured to find that uh, one of the world's memory champions uh, was a memory athlete named Scott Hagwood. He got into memory competitions because he was doing chemotherapy, and he started to learn all these memory skills from a book that he had read. So um, it's definitely possible to work better with what you have. Thanks a lot for that call. Good luck to you, Brian. And I want to leap on that phrase there, memory athlete. Until I read your book, I didn't know there were uh, competitive memory events. Yeah, there's a, a famous one who I mentioned in the book uh, named uh, Yenya Wintersoul, and she actually memorized an entire IKEA catalog. And so these are the kinds of things that they ask these memory athletes to do is just these incredible feats of remembering arbitrary, like you might give them an entire deck of cards and give them like a certain amount of time to just be able to form memories for the entire thing. And they're just incredible at this stuff. Uh, um, and the reason is, is not because they were born with some perfect photographic memory, but they just learn skills just like any other athlete does. Thanks for the call, Brian. We're talking to Charan Ranganath about his new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Another Brian on the line now, Brian in Madison. Brian, hi, what did you want to bring up? Hi, so I just had a quick question about um, how trauma impacts memories. Um, I was a freelance writer during the protests in 2020, some of which became riots, and noticed I have very specific and detailed moments of individual parts of those days and evenings, and the rest of it almost immediately was not remembered at all. So just kind of a question about what is the physical process that's happening there, and then also what's the utility for our memory working that way in traumatic circumstances? Brian, thanks for the call, Charon. You've worked with uh, people dealing with trauma, Vietnam veterans, and others. How does trauma affect our memory? Oh, it's such a beautiful question. Um, so one of the things that we know about memory is, is that during these emotionally intense experiences, like stressful experiences, uh, as your caller described, uh, you can get a release of both stress hormones, and sometimes you can get a fight-or-flight response, which is associated with a chemical called noradrenaline. And they promote plasticity in the brain, so they allow these normally transient memories to stick. But we don't necessarily remember everything from those experiences. We tend to focus on the things that were most emotionally relevant, right? So uh, your caller might have remembered you know, being afraid for their life at some scary moment during these protests, but not necessarily remember which shoes he was wearing at the time. And that's because it's not so relevant to the emotional part. And your caller said it beautifully that uh, why is this? And I think the thing is, is that our brain is designed to prioritize our limited memories for the things that are most important. And from a biological perspective, things that give us stress, things that give us anxiety or fear are going to be the most important experiences because if I, you know, find a snake or if I find a saber-toothed tiger with, you know, a caveman ancestors, I should say, it's important to know that I not only that I saw those uh, things, but I also want to know where they were so I can avoid them in the future. Um, and so that's why I think it made sense that um, traumatic memories will stick around. Uh, but obviously, it can be very difficult to have these recurring traumatic memories that come back at uh, inopportune times.
Brian, thanks for that call. I want to spend our last couple minutes with some uh, memory hygiene, Charon. What are some good daily healthy behaviors we can do that are going to help us remember stuff better? Well, there's the long-term things like anything that affects your body health will affect your brain health, which will affect your memory. So a lot of the things that we think of as being good, especially for aging, uh, exercise, a healthy diet, and so forth, are going to be things that can help you uh, age better with memory. Even things like we're just finding out things like people have hearing problems, using hearing aids can help preserve memory function, or things like uh, um, even gum disease can potentially affect memory function. We're still learning a lot. Um, But in terms of the everyday memory hygiene for anyone, uh, the things I think that I would suggest more than anything else is to, like, remove your distractions and do not multitask. And what I mean by that is we're often doing something but then interrupted. For instance, we we get in our own heads or we're interrupted because, you know, there's an incident with family or something. A child is upset. You need to drop everything and talk to them. But then there's the things that we do to ourselves, like, you know, phone alerts, for instance, or if you have a watch that tells you every time you get a text message. These are the things that are everyday memory blockers, because once you start focusing on that email or that text message and you come back, what happens is, is that it actually takes your brain a little bit of extra processing just to get you back on track. And that has a cost in terms of both what you're doing in the moment, but also memory. And so often we think we're being very efficient by checking our text messages and then talking and then checking email and then talking. But in fact, what happens is we actually are losing memory for all these experiences. And so you're much better off taking your time to daydream than taking your time to do email and then taking your time to be in the moment in a conversation rather than flipping back and forth in between. John, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. John Ranganath is professor of psychology and director of the neuroscience lab at the University of California at Davis. And he joined us for a look at his new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Alexei Navalny died in prison last week where he was serving a 30-year sentence. Navalny was the leading opposition figure to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has since jailed over 150 people for commemorating Navalny's death. The reactions of political leaders in the U.S. have been reflective of a growing divide between liberals and conservatives on Russia and the U.S. role as an ally to Ukraine and to NATO countries. We're talking about Russia, U.S. politics, and 
the death of oppos- opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. What are your thoughts on U.S. policy toward Russia as we head into this presidential election? Is this th- something you're thinking about as we head into this election? Do you have questions about Russian internal politics after the death of Alexei Navalny? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one, two, three, four, or email ideas at WPR.org. Yoshiko Herrera is professor of political science at UW-Madison. She's an expert on Russian politics and U.S.-Russia relations. Yoshiko, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you very much. First, can you tell us a little bit about Alexei Navalny and his role as a leader of opposition to Vladimir Putin's government? Yes, sure. He started out as a real estate attorney and was investigating um, corruption in the Russian government in the early 2000s. And from that, um, he became a little bit more active as an opposition politician. Um, He was known to have a good sense of humor and to be um, sort of charming and charismatic. And he was actually targeted by the Russian government and twice charged um, with embezzlement, you know, which is ironic because that's exactly the kind of thing he was investigating the government for. Um, He received suspended sentences and he ran for mayor, actually, of Moscow. Um, And most uh, notably for most people, uh, he was um, poisoned in August 2020 um, with Novichok. And um, largely that's seen as by the Russian government. There's a movie about it called Navalny. Um, And after he recovered, he went back to Russia in 2021, refusing to, to leave the country and wanting to change the regime for the better, and he was immediately detained upon his uh, return in 2021, January, and he most recently was in solitary confinement in a penal colony in the Arctic Circle, um, and he died in custody there. And uh, died in custody. There are uh, rumors, claims that uh, he was was murdered. There was direct foul play. Or the other argument is he was in these horrific conditions in prison uh, that ultimately killed him. What do we know about uh, about his death at this point? Well, I think there's no question there was, quote, foul play. I mean, he was he was imprisoned uh, wrongly and held in very difficult conditions. And we know that he was a threat to the regime. So I don't actually think there's any, I mean, we could uh, debate whether the regime, quote, killed him or not, but I I would say he was killed by the regime one way or another. Um, He had recently appeared on video just a few days before his death, and he seemed sort of fine. So it didn't look like he was suffering from an observable health condition. Um, And so I think it's fair to say that the regime killed him. What's been the reaction in Russia to his death? Well, uh, many people have gone out to put flowers um, or commemorate uh, victims of Soviet gulag. Um, over the weekend, the government arrested over 400 people for doing things like that. Um, there are, um, you know, I think his, his death is sort of shocking, even though people know the Putin regime is capable of cruelty and extreme brutality and violence. It was still a shock. Um, somehow that they that they had killed him. His mother has um, traveled to where he was held and has appealed um, for his body to be released. His body is kept um, somewhere in a morgue and and not not available to his family for burial or for for viewing. So I think that um, 
within Russia, of course, the Putin supporters uh, maybe thought that they were um, helping their cause by finally getting rid of him. But I think there is a fair amount of um, backlash internationally and to some extent within Russia as well. I want to listen to some of that backlash here from President Biden reacting to the news, saying he was outraged but not surprised. Here's a listen. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. We've heard uh, reports of some new sanctions coming now from the Biden administration in response to Navalny's death. Does his death affect U.S.-Russia relations that much, or does it kind of confirm where we already were? Well, U.S.-Russia relations are in a sort of precarious point right now because um, the number one thing that we can do to weaken Russia and weaken their capacity for violence is to support Ukraine. And as you, you and your listeners probably know, the Ukraine Israel and humanitarian funding bill is currently um, held up in the in the House. So I think that um, it's possible that the, the death of Navalny will uh, crystallize for people the threat that Russia poses um, to its own people and internationally, and it may um, it may loosen some of the the political resistance that's been holding up the support for Ukraine. So I think that. Yes, there, there, what more can we do uh, against Russia? We know that the sanctions, which are comprehensive, have some, there are some leaks um, and some, some things, further things that could be done. So I think that for sure we, we should be doing those things anyways. Um, Navalny's death might, um, might spark a bit more of that. We've seen a split in the Republican Party in a recent uh, Senate vote, for example, on that Ukraine aid. You mentioned a Republican split more or less down the middle and the ultimately successful vote in the Senate. Uh, former President Trump uh, responded to Navalny's death, didn't mention Putin at all. Uh, here, uh, Trump wrote on Truth Social, quote, Sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors and judges leading us down a path to destruction. Uh, his uh, GOP rival in the presidential race, Nikki Haley, called Trump weak in the knees for that response and not for directly confronting Putin. Can you talk about what you see in Republican politics surrounding Navalny's death and attitudes toward Russia? Yes, I think the first thing is that there's bipartisan support in America by wide margins against Russia and in favor of Ukraine. Most Americans understand that Putin is a brutal dictator and they do not support him. Um, there's a, only a couple of exceptions, um, prominent exceptions in America of people who support Putin and that's um, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. And I think something that a lot of Republican representatives in Congress and in the Senate are realizing is that that position, that pro-Putin, pro-dictator position is not actually popular with the American people. And so I think one of the problems that the Republican party faces is that to the extent that they want to um, stick with with Trump, they are going to have to confront an electorate that largely does not support dictatorship and and killing of political prisoners and the brutality that is unfolding in in Ukraine. Yoshiko Herrera is with us from UW Madison, professor of political science and expert on Russian politics, U.S. Russian relations. You can join in at eight hundred six four two one two three four as we talk about. 
Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. after the death of Alexei Navalny, longtime critic of Vladimir Putin. Let's go to your calls at 800-642-1234. Mark is with us in Wisconsin Rapids. Mark, hi. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. You know, this, this whole incident with Navalny and a series of people before him that Putin has eliminated, I think really speaks to just who uh, the Russian people right now uh, are in back of. And for one party in this country, led by, you know, a, a potential candidate for that party for the presidency, just scares the daylights out of me. Because if you think for a minute that this country can go alone against the likes of China or Russia, if and when they decide, you know, it's all right to do that, because we no longer, you know, are, are allied with our friends in Western Europe, I think people who feel that way ought to think about very long and hard about where their children and grandchildren are going to have to draw a line in the sand to make sure that this country stays free. Thanks for the call, Mark. And Mark mentioned uh, America's relations with uh, Western Europe and NATO allies. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that part of the story, uh, how the U.S. has cooperated or not with NATO when it comes to confronting Russia? Yes. Well, one of the shocking things last week was Donald Trump saying that he would not support a NATO ally, not only would not support a NATO ally who was attacked by Russia, but that he would encourage Russia to do whatever it wanted with that country. And this is a, a clear break um, in terms of U.S.-European um, relations and U.S. support of NATO countries. I mean, we are in a firm alliance with NATO, and we have been since the end of World War II. And so it's, it's just, uh, it's almost hard to imagine the United States not supporting a NATO ally. Moreover, Russia has made very clear that they are not just at war with Ukraine, but they are at war with the West. Putin, in his interview with Tucker Carlson, spoke at length about the expansiveness of the Russian world, of the Russian empire. He mentioned Poland numerous times. And I think it's quite worrying that he didn't suggest in any way that there were any boundaries to his view of, of, of where Russia should, should end. So I think that there is just no question that Russia poses a major threat to the United States and to, to Europe, and we need to be uh, very prepared for what would happen if uh, Russia were to prevail in Ukraine. I think there's little um, doubt that Putin would be emboldened by that and attempt to go further. Thanks for that call. Yoshiko Herrera is with us, professor of political science at UW-Madison, talking with us about U.S. with us about U.S.-Russia relations in the wake of opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death in prison in Russia. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your questions. Uh, and what do you make of uh, former President Donald Trump, his uh, competitor Nikki Haley, and President Biden's various uh, opinion statements when it comes to Russia, Ukraine, and the death of Alexei Navalny? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with UW-Madison political science professor and Russia expert Yoshiko Herrera, looking at U.S. politics and the response to the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny in Russia. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Back to your calls with Carolyn in Milwaukee. Carolyn, hi. 
Hi. Um, my main thing is I don't understand. I'm, I've been, uh, I'm older, and so I was around during Eisenhower's time and before that, and I don't understand what's happened to the Republican Party. And I also, um, but you kind of answer that, but I also want to know how strong this um, movement is in Russia, the people that are standing up, how um are there a lot of people who are just not brave enough to, to stand up? And the people who do are so brave. I can't. I'm just so. Um, I just feel that they're wonderful people that they're standing up to this dictator. And I, I wondered how strong that movement is too. Carolyn, thanks for the call, Yoshiko. Uh, how strong is opposition to Putin, and how willing are people to risk uh, literally everything? Well, it's a very good question. And Putin has really cracked down on the country, especially in the last few years, but in particular since 2022. Um, he is arresting um, high school kids for Facebook posts. There was just an arrest of a joint Russian-American citizen yesterday in Yekaterinburg who had gone to a pro-Ukrainian rally in Los Angeles. And then she had gone back to Russia and she was just arrested. Somebody like Alexei Navalny is a little bit unusual in that he was literally not only willing to give his life, but he was just very brave in the face of threats from Putin. And he tried to encourage people to stand up in his, um, at the end of the Navalny movie that was made about him, he says to people, if only 10% of us would stand up the to the regime, um, the regime would not last because they can't arrest all of us. And he just appealed to people to be strong, to not give up, to keep fighting against the regime. But it's very, very hard when you're facing um, jail or death and the regime's message to individuals just to say, don't bother, it won't work. No one cares what you think. No one cares what you're going to do. And you have no choices. You have no options. So it's a very, very hard situation and it takes a lot of bravery and courage to risk arrest and and stand up to that and of course there are a number of opposition leaders prominent ones that are in jail but there's also ordinary people who've been jailed who um you know are are um sort of suffering without um many people even knowing about it so it's a it's a very tough situation thanks for the call carolyn jeff joins us now in superior hi jeff well, good afternoon. I cringe when I hear media or educators talk about Russia is our enemy, etc. I think there's a big difference between the Russian government and the Russian people. I think eventually Putin will be gone and the Russian people will be liberated. And uh, that's what I look for. But I think it's disingenuous for the media to show this outcry for Navalny when, when he was alive. They didn't really fight for his freedom. They didn't really tell us the truth of what he had to do. And I'm concerned about this journalist with, I think it's Wall Street Journal, who's being held in Russia. And, uh, you know, when are we going to hear the truth? Putin said in the Tucker Carlson interview that he was guilty of receiving secret information in a covert manner. So when are we going to hear the truth? Jeff, thanks for the call. Referring there to Evan Gershkovich from the Wall Street uh, Journal. Uh, Yoshiko, I mean, have you seen outcry prior to Navalny's death about the treatment of Navalny uh, and journalists like Evan Gershkovich? Um, yes. And let me just say, um, I, I would not consider myself anti-Russian people. I'm certainly anti-Putin, but I lived in Russia for two and a half years in the 90s. I know a lot of Russian people, but this is a dictatorial regime. And in a dictatorial regime, the people 
actually literally do not have a voice, are not able to stand up. And those that do are punished like Navalny. So I think that the truth is that Putin is a brutal dictator and the Russian people that there are, you know, there are some people that are supporting him. Let's be clear about that. But there are a lot of people who are not. And those people currently um, are facing a lot of repression. Evan Gershkovitz is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who was arrested by Putin and they have made up um, charges against him. Um, but there's, he is being detained um, unfairly. He should be released immediately. And of course, I think the Biden administration and others are working for his release. I hope that Tucker Carlson would use his contacts to try to get him released. But the detaining of American citizens or anyone who's a journalist um, or anybody who just is speaking their mind um, is, is something we should not we should condemn and we should work towards getting all political prisoners freed. And I, people have been working on that, but we don't have a lot of leverage over the Putin regime. Thanks for the call. Andy is with us now in Appleton. Andy, hi. Hi, I'm, um, I love conspiracy theories. So the fact that Donald Trump met with Vladimir Putin five times, and there's not one record of any of the conversation that took place from him, um, raises a red flag suspicion with me as well as uh, Rand Paul and our local Ron Johnson have never been critical of what I would consider America's enemy. Also raises suspicion that there's a lot of infiltration from uh, Russia to influence American politics. Andy, thanks for the call. Now, uh, Ron Johnson uh, said, I've got this in front of me from the AP, uh, on the Senate floor, he said last week, uh, quote, I don't like this reality. Vladimir Putin is an evil war criminal. Uh, but he went on, Vladimir Putin will not lose this war. Uh, so I want to talk about that uh, element of this, Yoshiko, somebody like Senator Johnson, who said on this show, uh, he doesn't think spending more money on Ukraine's behalf is worth it because they've, in effect, already lost. And that's one of the arguments we've seen in Congress against further funding for Ukraine, even for people who don't support or say they don't support Putin. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Well, I think that's wrong. I think the Ukrainians are absolutely begging us for ammunition and for um, supplies. And in the West, in the United States and in NATO countries, we have those supplies. Our defense industries here are capable of uh, producing the armaments and ammunition that Ukraine needs. So the idea that um, the West, that NATO and the US in backing Ukraine cannot cannot win is just, I think that is false. I don't think very many military analysts at all think that um, Russia would prevail against uh, Ukraine with uh, backing from, from the West. So no, Ukraine has not already lost. They've lost about 20% of their territory is currently occupied by by Russia, but the capital stands. Ukrainian people are very motivated to maintain their sovereignty and their nationhood because they see the atrocities and war crimes committed in Russian areas. So no, Ukraine is not lost and they can win with our support. And if we want to weaken Putin, um, we need to support Ukraine. The worst thing for the West and for Ukraine and for the United States would be a Putin victory in Ukraine. Thanks for that call. In just our last minute, one more news story cropped up. Yoshiko, uh, some members of Congress raised alarm about a potential national security threat. Uh, it emerged uh, they had been briefed or were about to be briefed about uh, Russian plans to try to develop nuclear weapons to use in 
orbit, still try to pin down exactly what is going on there. How how alarming is that story? Or are we getting out ahead of ourselves? This is something that might be planning and is not imminent. Well, I actually think this connects a little bit to the first part of the previous caller's question in that um, one of the ways that Russia is um, battling the West is through massive disinformation campaigns. And one of the things that they try to do is exploit fears that they think have some seed or basis in the West um, and, to, and to make more of that. So one of the concerns about supporting Ukraine is nuclear escalation. And so, oh, lo and behold, now we hear from Russia, they're going to come up with a new nuclear weapon in space. So now maybe they are close to it, um, but I think it's also consistent with their um, manipulative uh, media attempts to put that story out there. Yoshiko, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Yoshiko Herrera, professor of political science at UW-Madison, an expert on Russia, polit- Russian politics and U.S.-Russian relations. She talked to us about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the response here across uh, various parties here in the United States to that death. You can keep sharing your thoughts on the issue. You can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Join Wisconsin Public Radio Thursday morning for live special coverage of the State of the Tribes Address. This year's address starts around 10 o'clock in the morning at the Wisconsin State Capitol. We'll hear from James Crawford, who's chairman of the Forest County Potawatomi. It's live special coverage of the 2024 State of the Tribes Address. Again, that's around 10 a.m. on Thursday. You can listen live here on Wisconsin Public Radio and at WPR.org. And, of course, you can go to WPR.org if you miss it. Check it out in archive form and check out the morning show for some more about the State of the Tribes Address. You can find quality dairy, beer, and more here in Wisconsin, but there's more great beverages that come from the state. How about some of the best tap water in the country? As reported in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the city of Columbus in Columbia County won a national competition earlier this month for its tap water. Their water supply won a Wisconsin contest last year. That put it in the running for the National Rural Water Association's 25th annual Great American Water Taste Test. According to the organization, they judge water from 40 water utilities around the country for color, clarity, bouquet, and, of course, taste. And Columbus Utilities came out with the gold. I'm curious about the training of the judges, and I wonder if I have what it takes. I'm not an expert, but working in this building, the HQ of WPR, I know what bad tap water can taste like. Rusty nails. That's been fixed now. But if it ever goes bad again, maybe I can smuggle some water in from Columbus. Water news you can use. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. A new version of the online free application for federal student aid, also known as FAFSA, had a soft launch in late December and officially went live in early January after weeks of delays. The form was redesigned to be simpler so that more students would apply for federal aid. But the rollout of the new form came with a host of technical problems. Now the Department of Education announced that students' financial info won't be released to schools until mid-March. It's a two-month delay from when schools typically receive FAFSA info and start putting together financial aid packages for incoming students and those with continuing enrollment. 
The delay is raising concern that students won't be able to make informed decisions about where to attend school next year and how much it's going to cost. Our next guest has researched FAFSA completion rates in Wisconsin and is an expert on financial aid policy. She's here to help us understand what the latest FAFSA delays could mean for students and families. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you or someone in your family filled out that FAFSA form this year? Was it a smooth process? Did you have troubles with the website? Did you have to delay a couple few weeks along the way? Are you worried about the delay in information maybe affecting what you know about a big decision coming up? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Ellie Brooker is Associate Director of Policy Analytics at the Institute for College Access and Success. She has a Ph.D. in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis from UW-Madison. Ellie, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, some people are intimately familiar with the FAFSA. Uh, some people are not. Can you introduce us? What is the FAFSA? Why are people worried about it? Sure. So the FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. Uh, it is the primary way that students access financial aid of all kinds. Uh, some states have their own additional financial aid forms, but the only way that you're going to get federal student loans, Pell Grants, all federal financial aid and most state financial aid is by filling out that form every year. Okay, so we had the old FAFSA form. What led to this decision to change it, to try to simplify it? Yeah, I mean, as you said, the primary goal here was to make the FAFSA simpler. So uh, prior to the FAFSA Simplification Act that was passed in 2021, the FAFSA had about over 100 questions. And the new FAFSA now should have about 36 questions for most filers. Um, I think the other big piece that tried to make things simpler here was improving the connections between the Department of Education and the IRS. So that data used to calculate student financial need was sent directly from the IRS to the Department of Ed without requiring students and families to input that information. Before we get to what's uh, gone wrong over the last couple of months, uh, you see some problems at the outset, when it, as I understand it, when it comes to uh, funding uh, for the rollout of this new version of the FAFSA. What do you think uh, might have uh, come out better from Congress to get ready for this big change? Sure. So I think it's really important to like acknowledge that there's this is the biggest overhaul of the FAFSA in decades. So some hiccups were probably going to happen no matter what. But that was definitely exacerbated by the fact that Congress required the department to release the new FAFSA for this aid year, but didn't attach any additional resources for them to do that. And not only that, the Federal Student Aid Office or the FSA, who is responsible for this, was flat funded, which means they're allocated the same budget from previous years. So the FSA is underfunded and facing real capacity challenges trying to get this done. Um, and we would have liked to see them properly fund the FSA um, so that they could do this well. So what were some of the earliest signs that uh, things weren't going to go as smoothly as we might have hoped? Yeah, so the very first issue was the initial delay. So for the last several years, students and families have been able to access the FAFSA starting on October 1st, which means then that colleges, as you said, were receiving information to create financial aid packages much earlier. So right from the start, the department was not able to get the new form up and running on time and announced that that would be live at the beginning of December, and that eventually became the end of December. Um, as soon as then the application was available, there were some issues, though these were, you know, I think we'd understand is fairly routine for the launch of a new form like this, people having difficulties getting logged on, 
things timing out, folks being unable to submit the form. But I think then we started learning about much larger issues. And what were some of those issues? Sure. So one of the biggest ones has to do with the new formula for calculating financial needs. So in addition to simplifying the FAFSA, this, this new FAFSA also made really important changes to the way we calculate students' financial needs. Um, it changed that methodology so that more students would have access to federal Pell Grants, which is the largest portion of federal grant aid. Um, and that formula was intended to be adjusted to inflation, um, and that was not done. Um, the department didn't make that adjustment. And so not making that adjustment means that it appears as if families have more discretionary income than they do in reality, and many, many students who would appear ineligible for Pell Grants when, in fact, they should be eligible for Pell Grants. Initially, the department wasn't going to fix that mistake, but that decision was reversed, and making that fix is the primary delay for releasing financial information to colleges. The other issue I really want to highlight here is one that's affecting specifically mixed-status families, and that's families with a parent or parents who are undocumented and a student who is a citizen. Those families right now are completely unable to fill out the FAFSA because the form is inaccessible without a Social Security number. So even though the student is a citizen and is eligible for federal financial aid, they're currently not able to complete the FAFSA, and so that's another item on the to-do list for the Department of Ed. Talking to Ellie Brooker with the Institute for College Access and Success, talking about this key financial aid form for college students, new and continuing college students, the FAFSA, a big change in the form, simplifying the form, but difficulties in the rollout. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you filled out a FAFSA over the last couple few months? How did it go? Did you delay doing it because you were hearing about these problems. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Ellie, the latest shoe to drop now, the Department of Education letting colleges know, hey, uh, we're going to get you information about your students and their eligibility for financial aid. It's going to be later than you're used to. How big a delay is that and what's the impact? So the delay now is mid-March. Colleges were Uh, receiving financial aid information for students from the Department of Ed in January, typically. Um, And so now that's about a two-month delay. And mid-March is when the colleges are going to get students' financial financial information. They still need to create financial aid packages and send that to students. So this is going to have a really serious effect on when students actually figure out how much college is going to cost them. Who is this going to hurt the most, do you think? Uh, I think students. Um, If colleges aren't receiving that financial aid information until mid-March, then students aren't going to see a financial aid award letter until April or even May, depending on how well-staffed financial aid offices are. And that's far later in the process than students are expecting. And students who are choosing between multiple colleges are now trying to do that without any real assurances about what their options will cost them. And we know from research that students underestimate their financial aid and overestimate the cost of college. So I think there's a real concern that continuing to prolong the time between students deciding to go to college and students receiving that information is going to affect enrollment choices. And I think especially for students who weren't sure about college to begin with, these extra hurdles and delays are going to feel really overwhelming. And it might dissuade them from enrolling at all. We're at about half the number of FAFSAs completed than we'd usually be at by this point. And I think there's really likely going to be a lot of students who just don't complete at all. And delaying financial aid packages are going to be a huge, huge problem. 
but we also really want to call attention to the folks who might forego the process entirely and not enroll in college when they might have otherwise. And Ellie, that's, I think, a really important point. For people going to college next year and their families, uh, they may hear about this Rocky FAFSA rollout and, as you say, might not fill it out. Uh, if there's any thought they might go to, to, to college, they should still fill out that FAFSA, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, we know it's going to be a headache for a while, and students will have to wait a bit longer to really get the results of filling that out to find out what college will actually cost them. But it is still worth completing that form. Um, colleges can't give you financial aid without it. Um, so I think best choice is still to complete that form. Talking to Ellie Brooker, Associate Director of Policy Analytics at the Institute for College Access and Success. She has a Ph.D. in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis from UW-Madison. We're talking about delays in reporting and processing student financial aid as the Department of Education launches a new FAFSA form, the key national financial aid form used by governments and schools alike. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever filled out one of these FAFSA forms, uh, whether it was by hand back in the day, the old online form? Maybe you've done it this year. Did you put it off because of the problems they were having? Did you encounter any trouble along the way? Do you have questions about who this affects, how it all works? And if you work in an institute of higher education, maybe in admissions, what are you worrying about right now? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Ellie Brooker from the Institute for College Access and Success about recent difficulties with the FAFSA, the government form that determines student financial aid eligibility. A delay in reporting student financial info to schools has left colleges and students in the lurch about financial aid decisions and deadlines for next year. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? Have you filled out a FAFSA this year? Are you worried about the, the turnaround time? Did you run into hiccups when you tried to get online if you tried to do it earlier in the process? Can you compare and contrast what the old form was like to the new one if you've done it in multiple years? What questions do you have about all this? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. At least speaking of deadlines, I see some schools, including many here in Wisconsin, are bumping back their decision deadlines, saying, hey, students, we know this is going on. We're going to give you a couple extra weeks in many cases uh, to hopefully get that financial aid package and then make your decision. Are you are you expecting a lot of schools to pursue this path? We certainly hope so. Um, students just will not be able to make the, those deadlines. Decision deadlines um, it can happen as early as March for some schools. Many of them are May 1st. Um, but if we expect award letters to arrive sometime in April, it's really important that we give students as much time as possible. I think Colleges are aware that that's going to cause a a pretty big burden on them, on their registrar's office, their enrollment department. Um, But we're really grateful to see colleges um, extending those deadlines as much as possible. And if uh, people are listening and waiting for all this information, check with your school. A lot of them are posting various dates. It'll be a lot to list here, uh, bumping back their decision deadlines. Now, Ellie, uh, the change itself. Now, I, I have twins in college for many years in a row. I filled out two FAFSAs. Uh, I waited a little bit to do it this year. 
it is a faster process. And the whole IRS link up worked way uh, faster than it has in recent years. Are you seeing some positives coming out of all of this rockiness and uncertainty? Absolutely. Uh, In the long run, this is a good thing. Uh, Making the FAFSA easier for students and families to fill out is good. So far, it hasn't been easier just because of the access issues, just because because of the delays, but actually filling out the form, as you said, does go much more smoothly once you're able to access it. Um, And so long term, this is going to be a huge benefit for students. Um, We're seeing more and more states require the FAFSA for high school graduation. And so making that form as as low lift as possible for families is uh, absolutely a good idea. Let's go to our callers at 800-642-1234. Carol is with us here in Wisconsin. Carol, hi. Hello. How are you today? Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. What did you want to tell us about, Carol? Well, it's a little tangent FAFSA, but I would hope that parents that are looking at students going to higher education also have their students look into something called the CLEP test, C-L-E-P. They're put on by the College Board, the same people that do the ACT and the SAT, and it is a very, very low-cost, simple way to get college credits. I've helped hundreds of students save thousands of dollars, and unfortunately, high schools typically don't look at them or recommend them because they're looking at AP tests. That's how they get measured. And colleges also typically do not say anything about them because they want your tuition dollars. So I would highly recommend that the students look at the CLEP tests and see how many credits can they get before they ever enter college because you need 120 college credits to graduate. Why not get them the simple and easy way? So thank you very much. Carol, thanks for the call. As Carol mentioned, a little tangential to FAFSA, Ellie, but do you look at those uh, high school ways to, whether it's AP or these CLEP uh, classes, to get early college credit? Sure. Um, I think we have uh, some research examining whether or not those uh, those types of early college credit programs help students get to and through college faster. I believe that they do. Um, that can also save money, as Carol said. Um, I think uh, I'm not familiar with CLEP in particular, but I think for any of those, always students should always be making sure that the colleges that they're looking at to go to will accept those credits, that they will count for the specific credits they want them to. Um, so I think those are a great thing to look into. Just make sure you do your research. Thanks for the call, Carol, at 800-642-1234. Bill is with us in Minnesota. Bill, hi. Hi. I was trying to find out uh, if there's a level of income at which financial aid or FAFSA would, would uh, not be a viable option. Thanks for the call, Bill. And, yes, there are uh, income levels where you're not going to get need-based financial aid. Right, Ellie? Yeah, there are. There's a pretty complicated formula behind that, Um, like a lot of things factor in. So I think it's still always a good idea to fill it out just to see. There's not like an exact number where there's a cutoff because there's so many things that factor in. Um, But, yeah, there's a certain point at which uh, folks would be ineligible. There are some, some folks that wouldn't be eligible for any federal financial aid. Bill, thanks for that call. And, Ellie, that takes us to some of your research. If I'm reading uh, your work right, the people who need financial aid the least and who are least likely to be eligible are the most likely to fill out the FAFSA and the people at lower income levels may be less likely to fill out the FAFSA. Do I have that right? You do. So in recent years, um, in my research, I've seen a pretty consistent pattern where Title I schools, which are schools that serve a high proportion of low-income students, 
have lower FAFSA completion rates than schools serving fewer low-income students. And as you said, that seems kind of backwards, right? Because low-income students are the ones most likely to be eligible for and need more financial aid. But we see that pattern across the nation where schools serving wealthier students tend to have higher completion rates than schools serving more low-income students. What kind of things can we do to uh, make sure that the students, uh, potential college students who need that help, uh, get that FAFSA filled out? I think that Wisconsin has a really strong um, program for uh, like FAFSA completion nights, FAFSA assistance nights. I've done some research on those, and those seem to work really, really well for students in that school district and surrounding districts. Any professional support that families can get to complete this form is helpful. Um, High school counselors uh, checking in with students, making sure that they've completed the form, um, that they're all set to go is really important. Uh, I think any kind of intervention where we can be reaching out to students and families, providing them help getting the form done is a good thing. Again, we do hope, though, that making these changes to the FAFSA, reducing that to 36 questions and making more pieces of that kind of be populated automatically will make it so that families need that help a little less. Talking to Ellie Brooker uh, with the Institute for College Access and Success, looking at FAFSA, the big national financial aid form, simplifying it, but uh, it got less simple with some difficulties during the rollout of the new FAFSA. As I understand it, Ellie, you were a first-generation college student, a Pell recipient yourself. Could you talk about how that shaped your perspective and, and how these things really do can affect the lives of people who might not otherwise be able to go to college? Absolutely. The FAFSA is a really daunting hurdle for all students and families. But I think especially so for those who don't have parents or older siblings or other family members or friends who've gone through it before. Um, I remember when my family first filled it out in 2009, that was back when you first had to complete your taxes for that year and then use that information to complete the form. And I really, really remember the pressure that we felt, especially on my parents, to get that done because we knew that I'd be relying on financial aid. And that just feels very high stakes to look at this really complicated form and know that it's a required hurdle for you to be able to afford college. And so all of my work is shaped by those hurdles that I faced, being a Pell student, being a student loan borrower, being a first-generation college student. And I'm really determined that college be accessible to everybody who wants to go. And part of that means we have to make it easier for students to do things like complete the FAFSA because not everybody has the resources and support to jump through those hoops. We started off by talking about uh, a lack of appropriations from Congress, a lack of funding to put this change into practice. Well, here we are. It's Congress. Another appropriations deadline coming up. Is this something that that you see an opportunity to play some catch up and get more funding to hammer home this change? We certainly would love to see Congress invest more Um in make greater investments in financial aid. You know, even a fully funded maximum capacity, perfectly run federal student aid office can't magically create more Pell Grant money. Um, States have a role to play here too. Many have not caught up to the investments they were making before the Great Recession. Um, And so in general, I think prioritizing higher education through funding uh, is really, really paramount here. We would love to see Congress um, make historic investments in, uh, in financial aid funding. Um, in this next appropriations bill. And I see there's some uh, breaking news that the Government Accountability Office is opening investigations into the Department of Education and their handling of this. 
if you could ask one question about what went wrong here, Ellie, what would it be just in our last minute or so? That's a really great question. Um, I think, I think um, you know, we can acknowledge that the department is facing significant challenges here, but because this is going to have really serious negative impacts on students and colleges, we can't excuse that. And I, I hope that any investigation into this also keeps an eye on how this affects students downstream. Um, obviously, I have, have a lot of questions about how exactly all of this went wrong. Um, I personally am more concerned with um, an investigation into how students, uh, you know, deal with all of this, how they respond to getting financial aid packages later, how many of them don't complete the form at all, how many of them don't enroll. That's, I think, the, the priority on my end. Ali, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Ellie Brooker is Associate Director of Policy Analytics at the Institute for College Access and Success. She has a Ph.D. in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis from UW-Madison. She was with us for a look at the latest about the new FAFSA financial aid form and how delays are affecting students and families as college decision time gets closer. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, cheese, motorcycles, and video games. Check out a new effort to boost Wisconsin as a hub for video game design and production and what that can mean for the state's economy. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.